I'm looking at a photo right now of him with uh, a man. They're both shirtless on the, by the pool. Well? Well, this is all irrelevant for the moment. Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Catherine Hepburn. Oh wow, <laughs> Catherine, Mrs. Hepburn, I'm sorry. You sound much, much older than we last saw you on our film number 88 of AFI's Top 100. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm Catherine Hepburn. You, um, did you smoke a lot after your film? <laughs> I think she did. She was a smoker, right? Well, she does smoke that that uh, cigarette in the film, and I couldn't tell if she was inhaling or just kind of holding it. But uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. I was kind of surprised by a lot of things, and you would be too, dear audience, if you knew what we were talking about. Film in question is 1938's "Bringing Up Baby." Bringing up baby, which is about a leopard. Did you did you know that going in? I had no idea. I knew nothing about this movie except that it starred. Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Cary Grant who I always mix up with Rock Hudson I don't know who that second individual is so that's he was in a lot of films like Cary Grant like these sort of screwball comedies these screwball madcap comedies yes well the titular baby is in fact a leopard so it's right there in the title and that was very confusing to me I had not expected there to be not one but two leopards in this film so (laughs) Before we get, I guess, further afield, uh, why don't you give us a synopsis and we can help disentangle yeah, the confusion Yeah, I don't here. know how helpful my synopsis is going to be because it's <laughs> trying to write this as a clear and concise synopsis was... Uh, challenging. Yeah, I'm it was sure. challenging. Uh, but here we go. So Bringing Up Baby begins with Dr. David Huxley, who's a soft-spoken, mild-mannered paleontologist who's about to get married to a cold and steely woman and complete his brontosaurus skeleton. However, he must first court Elizabeth Random via her lawyer, Mr. Peabody, because she might give the museum that he works for a million dollars. So during Huxley and Peabody's game of golf, Huxley runs into Susan Vance, who is quite the opposite of his fiance. She's fast talking, overbearing, irreverent, and excitable. Huxley immediately dislikes her and chaos ensues involving his stolen golf ball, his car, and later his torn jacket and her torn dress. Susan insists that she knows Mr. Peabody and takes Huxley to his house later that night. However, Huxley's asleep, so to wake him up, Susan throws rocks at his window, eventually accidentally hits him in the head, and they run away. The next day, Susan calls a dejected Huxley who's both receiving the final dinosaur bone he needs and getting married that day to ask him for help with her new pet leopard. He eventually comes over and she tricks him into coming to Connecticut, they live in New York, with her and Baby, which is the name of the leopard. Yet again, chaos ensues and Huxley comes to discover that Susan is the niece of Elizabeth Random, the the woman who's going to give a million dollars to the uh, museum. Baby escapes. Random's dog 
buries the dinosaur bone. Huxley tries to get both back without revealing his identity. A second violent leopard from the zoo is accidentally released, and eventually Huxley, Susan, Random, and her big game hunter, Suter, end up in jail. Susan escapes by impersonating a gangster and returns with the wrong leopard after Baby shows up. They trap the wrong leopard and get Baby back. And then sometime later, we see Huxley, who's no longer getting married because of all the crazy things that happened that day. We see him visited by Susan, who's found his dinosaur bone after following the dog around for days. She declares her love. He acquiesces and... As Susan comically destroys the brontosaurus skeleton, the movie ends. Bravo, Mr. Knight. That was a fantastic <sighs> I description of this plot, <laughs> of this film's plot, which could have been far, far worse for all involved if they had gone with the original screenplay, yeah. which would have ended up being three hours and 22 minutes long. I mean, I would argue already that this film was probably about 30 minutes too long. Yeah, it is an incredibly long movie for... It's only about an hour and 46 minutes, but it's incredibly long for what it's about. Yes. Because they're running around in the woods for maybe 35 minutes, and it's all very <laughs> frenetic, I guess we can say. Yeah, and, and that's... I mean, when I say it's like 30 minutes too long, it's not that I disliked this movie necessarily. It's that it is... You're, it's frenetic, I think, is such a great way to put it. It is just at such a... It's, it's at 110 the entire time. Like, everyone's mm-hmm. talking over each other. Catherine Hepburn is constantly... It's just... It goes on and on and on. And it, it kind of got to the point where I was like, I'm kind of exhausted watching this movie. Like, I'm re- I'm ready for a break. There are some good lines that were being run over a lot. But we've sort of talked about this in a couple of films prior. How this is sort of the era of the fast-talking moving picture. Right, the moving picture. I want to talk like this, eh? Catherine Hepburn. I want to talk about you. You're talking like this and this and that. Well, I was just wondering if we could go get baby uh, Catherine Hepburn. Yes, I had the subtitles on as I usually do when I watch these older films. Mm -hmm. And I will say that subtitles actually were not accurate. So it was not incredibly useful, but you could also hear some of the lines that get buried that are actually pretty funny. And so it's got charm, this film. Yes, and I want to put that right out here. In no way would I say that I disliked this movie. Well, I, I guess I'm kind of on the fence about it, and maybe I'll feel better after we talk about it. But I laughed. I really enjoyed... I mean, there really were some parts where I was like... I mean, I laughed throughout. I laughed. I cried. I don't know about... Well, I cried because I, I took was a like, break to eat some cereal. I know. I was like, this needs to be over. But no, I mean, I laughed a lot. I really enjoyed Katherine Hepburn in this film. I may be in love with her. No relation to Audrey Hepburn. No, no. I had to look that up. Yeah, Because no. Katherine Hepburn is, is new to me. Yeah, no, she's a big deal. So there's one thing you did miss in your description, though. Yes, tell me. You forgot our poor, hard-drinking Irish servant, manservant. Oh, yeah. I would like to. I would like to forget him. <laughs> yeah. I think this film has a certain time and place, which we'll certainly get to in our three questions. Yeah. But why don't we mosey on down that road to themes and talk a little bit about what this film is trying to do in its sort of frenetic pace. Uh, well, you know, this I thought was a little hard. Certainly. One of the things I think we have to address is the fact that this, I, I think this film is a, in some ways a metaphor for child rearing. I mean, it's called Bringing Up Baby. The baby is a, a jaguar or a leopard. I mean, it's an animal, right? So I think there is something about like the insanity of actually taking care of a child. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit. I don't know. No, I think you're absolutely right. First, you almost misspoke and said jaguar because 
jaguars can be found in brazil whereas leopards cannot right so there's a little 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 goof them up there on the film's part but in any yeah. case you're right because the very first sense that of drama or tension that our main character david carrie grant's character has with miss swallow is that she wants no domestic entanglements of any kind in their marriage and he says oh you mean kids and he says and she says yes of course absolutely this will yes. be our child pointing to the brontosaurus we've got i just got i'm gonna say like that his fiance miss swallow is just she sounds awful and he she looks is kind miserable of like yeah. he's he wants to and that first scene this is part of the reason too that i was like this film is a little racy because he basically wants to he wants to get fucked like he's like we're not gonna go on the honeymoon she's like no yeah. domestic entanglements and he's like not even the i don't know if he says not even the honeymoon he says something else like not even or he says not even children or something like that he just wants yeah. to bang her after the wedding and she's not I, I don't think it. he can be faulted for that. But the question then becomes, why are they having a marriage if they don't want any kind of entanglements? Not that to say, like, oh, well, their marriage is just going to be sex, and that's what his expectation is. But it seems like it might be just for economic reasons or tax purposes. Surely they still had tax breaks back then. Right? I mean, I think it's really just to set up him with, like, a terrible wife. Right. And it works effectively. Yeah. And she's, like, comically terrible. Like, a very stock character. Yeah, and then titular baby shows up, and between the two of them, between Susan and David, Hepburn and Grant, they have to, well, first they have to save this leopard from many different entanglements that they themselves help set up. Right. And then they have to get out of it. So I kind of want to springboard off your theme about, you know, this domesticity and sort of the goal of this movie, right, which is to talk about childbearing or rearing, to talk about love. Yeah, More definitely broadly. love. And the, the chaos of love, right? Yeah, and you'll notice that this will sound very similar to A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, it's very similar to Midsummer Night's Dream. The whole theme of that play, or at least one of the themes, I don't want to oversimplify that play, is that love is a type of madness yeah, and chaos. A couple sets of lovers disappear into the woods for a night, and hilarity and madness ensue, but... We also have that in this film. They literally do disappear into oh, the Connecticut the woods. Right. woods for about 35 minutes where all of these issues are starting to come to a head, right? There's all sorts of misunderstandings, a lot of side scenes where you've got just one set of character, one set of characters. So it, it very closely mirrors that idea. Yeah. Well, and I think this this movie really, even more so than Midsummer Night's Dream, I, it really reminds me of Taming of the Shrew, but like a reverse version. So there, I think there is something really redeemable about this film, although I don't know that it fits perfectly. But I think I really think this is a reverse Taming of the Shrew. David Huxley, Cary Grant, is not interested in Catherine Hepburn. He, I think he says at one point, like, I'd never want to see you again. <laughs> oh, he says it multiple times. Uh, yeah. Whoever ends up with you is you know, going to have their hands full, and I, I hate to be that person. Yeah, he, he Are you okay? Her. Yeah, I'm great because you're not mine. Like, he just, the complete polarity the entire time. And she wants him bad. Which we don't actually get explicitly until she admits it to her aunt. Yeah. So I thought that was a little mishandled. No, I think it's great because it, I think, you know, once that once you know that she's like after him, it's very when she drops hints, she's like, You look so nice with your glasses off. But yeah, but this and is about like, an hour into the film though. Yeah, I guess you're right. But I don't know. I think even in that scene where she like t makes uh ties up his or sews his coat back up, it's very clear that she's like keeping him and she's like, Oh, what are mm. you doing going to get married? Da -da 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 -da. 
yeah, she wants him. And and so I think in a lot of ways this film I, I read somewhere that the the AV club, right? They had classified Katherine Hepburn's character as a manic pixie dream girl, right? Yeah. Which I completely disagree with. Completely disagree with because a manic pixie dream girl, that trope is someone who is a static character only there in order that basically only functions to, to help the male character grow and i think this is sort of quite the opposite she is extremely active she gets what she wants in the end she, she's the impetus for everything yes she exactly she's the impetus and the catalyst for everything that happens in this movie even though it starts with Cary grant i think this really is about katherine hepburn and this film was written with Catherine Hepburn in mind for Catherine Hepburn. So to call her the very first Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I think, is is patently wrong. Yeah, if that's your definition of Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I think you're absolutely right then. Because she is totally the dynamism of this film. Yes. And even ends with effectively her infecting uh, Huxley, David into loving her right she yeah. sort of just not badgers not browbeats but sort of just wears him down yes. through her mm-hmm. constant frenetic action right taming of the true she tames him yep yeah you're absolutely right and and i would argue too at the ending i read the ending where they're standing across the dinosaur and he's like i really had fun that day i had fun that day i feel like he's i don't think he's really professing his love and has been convinced i think he's because I don't really think he's changed. I think he's just kind of like, please don't fall, please don't fall. All right, you know, I'm not getting rid of you. Like that's why I wrote in this thing that he acquiesces. I don't think he like. Falls yeah, I like your love. use of acquiesce there. I kind of laughed myself a little bit when you said it because I think you're absolutely right. He doesn't fall in love with her. In fact, he doesn't say I love you. Right. He says I think I love you. Right. right. And he doesn't say it in the way that we typically get that sort of joyous i think i'm in love with you it's kind of just like i don't know where i am i'm literally on yeah. shaky ground and right, literally, i think yeah. i love you and like you this film does not end with like a passionate kiss it ends with him like their kiss is kind of awkward he's like holding on to her because he almost dropped her yeah he just falls into her arms basically and it's just like clutching her yeah and so I think, you know, this isn't a perfect, you know, one-to-one reading, but I really do think that this is a film that empower. It's a, it's a fairly feminist take on love. I mean, she's the pursuer. She gets what she wants. He gives up. Instead of, like, you know, many romantic comedies, you sort of, you see the opposite, right? They wear down, they, you know, you wear down the girl, and then the, you get the girl, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In this, she wears him down, and he's... I guess he does sort of change a little bit, but not really because at the beginning he's browbeaten by his fiance, and by the end he's still browbeaten by, you know, his new love interest. The only thing that changes is that he gets rid of Miss Swallow or she gets rid of him, but it's really a blessing in disguise for him because he's. We can probably agree that he'll have a much happier life with Susan. Right, yeah. Catherine Hepburn's character is much. I mean, at least it'll be more interesting, right? Also, <laughs> Susan's rich. I don't know if that. If he right, wants money I mean, for his museum and she has a million dollars, she's like, I'm going to give it to you. She almost has him captive, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, and she does sort of pay for him. I mean, it's a very sort of like dowry. I mean, it's a reverse. I really think that in a lot of ways, this is a feminist film. I agree. Wrapped up I in like a screwball it. comedy. Mm hmm. Now, that that being said, there are some sort of problematic things. There's that scene where he yells, he stomps on her foot and he yells at everybody. And, like, that, it's very clear that 
females do not have power. It's 1938. I mean, you could read it that way, but he's also wearing a frilly pink negligee at the time. Well, true. Right. But I, I don't know. I just, I read that as sort of a problematic scene because the women are clearly physically scared of him. Sure. So one thing I wanted to touch on before we moved on to our theses is that Susan Vance, so Hepburn's character, is also reality bending and truth defining in oh a lot of weird ways because absolutely she just convinces people of these nonsensical things until maybe they want maybe they're inclined to listen to her but she sort of sets the rules for this world in a lot of ways i think we call those alternative facts matt <laughs> yeah alternative <laughs> facts i think the best example is toward the end of the film where she's in the jail and convinces another they're all screwballs right right that she's some big time gangster yeah. and she's sort of just feeding them what they want to hear so she plays off people's i don't know willed realities and to kind of bend them around her own it's an interesting thing but i do want to bring up a small inconsistency i found we have the psychiatrist at the beginning that she's talking to mm-hmm. and this is after we've, we're fairly clear this is a screwball comedy and things are just going to be sort of crazy the whole time mm-hmm. he says all people who behave strangely are not insane Oh, yeah. It was almost like a defense for the screwball comedy, but by the end, he's so completely wrapped up in it as well. So I don't know if that's an inconsistency or if it's simply due to Miss Vance that changes his tune on things Mm. because she just so alters everyone she comes across. Right. Yeah. Well, Ethan, what do you say we get to our our theses right now? Sure. All right. Let's cue cue Ethan's apology for the thesis and how he's not quite sure it's the best. No, and oh maybe no, I, a... no, I like this one actually this time. I'm pretty all I right, pretty fantastic, confident. professional. Even though, I mean, it's I don't know that there it's it's hard to put a thesis on this film because it's oh just here it comes nuts. yep mm-hmm, sure fuck you um, <laughs> but here we go this is what I've got if you're relentless in pursuing your desires you can eventually acquire them if you just don't give up and you just keep chipping away you'll get what you want. Yeah, I think I took a different angle with mine, but it may still encapsulate yours in a weird way. So this film presents a reality that is just madness. It's all screwball, madcap. And as long as it is, everything's going to turn out all right in the end, as we see where they're all in jail. And then no one is held (laughs) on charges for car theft for any, for assault. He throws a rock at... Mr. Peabody's face. So there's all these these crimes that are committed. They're shooting guns just out. They're shooting the, guns out just out and about. And everything is is forgiven in the end. At least we can assume so because no one appears to be altered from where they started. So maybe that just reinforces the idea that it's like a Midsummer Night's Dream where all these transgressions yeah. are made in the woods and then when you come back, everyone's okay. Yeah, or Connecticut. I mean, we could think of Connecticut as the woods, right? Yeah, absolutely. Outside Versus of New York. New York. Right. I like that idea. Civilization versus wilderness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As much as you can call Connecticut the wilderness, but... (laughs) Well, for the scene of this film, it's outside of David's reality and Susan's to a smaller degree. Yeah. So when they go out there, they have pretty much the freedom to transgress and then they all get taken out of it at the end, which I don't really know where to set this up, but I was so struck by the jail scene as, you know, where they're sort of and accounting for all their various crimes throughout the, mm. the day it reminded me a lot of the ending of seinfeld oh yeah where they're all put in prison at the end right spoilers <laughs> well that's our podcast so we do right that is what we do we're in the business of spoilers yeah no you're right that is that is very similar i was just wondering if we have a pivotal scene in this <laughs> film. oh we sure do yeah 
And by that, I mean I have chosen a scene that was in the film. <laughs> because there's really no pivot to this, no. this film. It just goes because, and goes and goes. Because it's so, I guess we could call it articulated, right? Because everything is a pivot. Because everything is a 180 degrees sometimes from where mm. it started. So the scene I chose for the pivotal scene is where they're in Connecticut at Mrs. Random's house, which is Susan's aunt, the big game hunter at the table. They all run back in. Susan is telling them, oh, we were just going for walks up and down, down and down. I don't know. <laughs> and it just kind of illustrates the sort of crazed hilarity that this right. film kind of falls into. Breakneck speed. Yeah. And Baby has just gotten out. And David is calling the zoo. And, of course, that gets turned around 180 degrees. So I chose this scene as opposed to any others, because this is where right before they go out into the wilderness for basically 30 minutes of the film where things get really intense. I thought this one would sort of illustrate the kind of dynamic nature of the pace and also the oppositional nature of the plot. So all that is to say, listen to this. <laughs> it, uh, it is well, Susan, I do hope this time you've come to stay. Oh. Yes, I've come to stay, Ollie. Mm -hmm. We've just been walking, walking up and walking down. And... Where's that young man going now? He's just going in to take a rest. He, <clears throat> he has to take frequent rest. The doctor says, well, have you ever had jungle fever, Major? Uh, well, I... Oh, you uh, have. Well, then, of course, you realize how important rest is. Uh, well, of now, course. Now, for Mr. King. Bone, in his case, it's rather difficult because he has two doctors. Oh. One says rest, one says exercise. Which do you prefer? Well, I think that perhaps... Well, neither can he make up Why, his mind. Why, Susan, listen to this. What? This is a cable from Mark. Mark? Not a particle of sense in it, What does it know? say? What does it say? Are you pleased with baby? Love. Baby? Mark. Mark? There's not a word about my leopard. Le Your leopard? No, I've always wanted a yeah, leopard. Oh, excuse me. You know, he promised it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Don't call the zoo. Oh, I just... Don't call the zoo. Well, I, I just called them. It's all fixed. Call them back and unfix it. Well, why? Don't ask questions. Call them back. But I just told them they could have the leopard if they found it. You've given away, baby. Yeah. You had no right to do that. He doesn't belong to you. Oh, it's all your fault. You blew it. But you want Oh, I've had enough. I quit. You can't quit. Yeah. Call them back. But you told me to call them in the first place. Everything's changed. I just found out that that leopard belongs to Aunt Elizabeth. Aunt Elizabeth, you said Never it was mind, yours. I'll explain later. Just call them back and tell them that you were mistaken. But Susan, I've only just managed to convince them that I did see a leopard. They'll never believe me. Oh, now. well, I'll fix that, David. I'll tell them that you're a drug addict, that you're always seeing things. What's oh, the matter? Oh, oh, never mind. Give me that. Oh, Hurry up. Nothing of us. Hello. Hello, operator. Hello. Uh, get me Westlake, 284. I don't know what I'm going to tell them. Oh, never I... mind, David. What you're going to tell them? Hello. Hello. Is that Zoo? Well, nobody's talking, baby talk. Well, I'm the man that called up about the leopard. You don't have to do anything about it. It's all been a mistake. Yes. Well, stop them for... What's the matter? Oh, my... What did he say? Oh, it's, it's too late. It was the night watchman. He said everybody's gone. They're all out leopard hunting. Oh, jeepers. You've gotten uh, us into a wonderful mess. Oh, I got well, you. Let's well, let's see before we act. You, you think. You can think faster than I can. Thank you, David. Now, what do you take with you when you go to catch a leopard? A bigger leopard. Well, one thing's certain. We've got to catch him before they do. Oh, I've got to watch George. I can't... Take George with us. Oh, my God. Okay, so I think that sort of illustrates what we're talking about. She says, oh, don't worry, we'll tell them you're a drug addict and then we'll get them to come back. And But the whole zoo apparently is already left to go hunting leopards in Connecticut. So right. it, just, it just fully illustrates how Susan dictates reality in a lot of ways mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, it's really 
she is kind of almost like a divine force in this because everyone just so totally bends around her will. I can dig it. So, Ethan, how would you feel about us going to our three questions now? Because I think there's actually a lot of ground for us to tread on those questions. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first one might be a little bit easier than the other two, but do we care about this film? Actually, I think this is the hardest one. Oh. Because, yeah, I, I mean, I guess we do, yeah. I don't know, I thought about this earlier today, and I, you know, yeah, I mean, we do. But I don't know that I could be like, yes, absolutely, I 100% do. I mean, I'm just like, yeah, sure. I wouldn't say that I don't care about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I do like this film. I was not utterly enthralled by it, but I did get through it. It was relatively easy to watch. It was tiresome at some points. Yeah. But for the most part, I think that it is a decent film. And I'm sort of troubled. It had a a huge commercial failure. I know. It was a flop. Where Catherine Hepburn had to buy herself out of her next contract. The director got fired from his next job. Even now, now, it's recognized to be that director's best film, Hawks, I believe. Yeah. Actually, you know what? The more I think about this, if we think of it as a feminist film, I think we do care about it. Yeah, and I think with what you've added to that, with the sort of feminist reading of it, and also Midsummer Night's Dream, and sort of the ways in which this plays a lot with madness, reality, love, and domesticity by its opposition, I yeah. do think we should care about this film. I don't think it makes these themes utterly apparent, but hey, that's what we're here for, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, in comparison, I, I'll put it this way. In comparison to a lot of the really terrible romantic comedies that get pumped out every year, I would much rather watch this again than watch half of the shit that, gets, that Hollywood pumps out. Oh, right. I mean, this is like platinum compared to that that like dirt of the other com the romantic comedies that are typically put out today yeah i mean this you know doesn't necessarily stick to the sort of basic romantic comedy script i think it flips it a little bit and yeah so now i've talked myself into it i would say glowingly yes we should care about this movie <laughs> although ethan i i must i must redredge up something that i had considered in the past do you remember what happens about 20 minutes before the film ends tell me he tries to send her away, and they have their classic romantic comedy 20 minutes before the film's up. Oh, we have to yeah. shake up the relationship. So it does play into that thing, but other than that, I think, yeah, it sort of flies its own path on this. Yeah, I mean, I guess they have a meet-cute, but not really, because he kind of hates her, and then it just keeps going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of apparent that, you know, it's... But it, it doesn't feel... I mean, it feels more fresh than many romantic comedies I've seen in the past several years. So I will give it that. You're right, and that's incredibly hard to do when this movie's so old. You'd think that right. a lot of films would be playing off of it and you would feel tired and cliche, mm -hmm. which was one of our fears with starting this podcast is that a lot of the things we were going to see were going to feel trite or cliche because we've seen them so often. Right. But that's rarely been the case, probably just because... I'm willing to theorize that these films just did it better. Yeah, I think so. All right, why don't we tackle our second question? What do we owe this film? Well, I don't know. Well, how about I start? I have a few things we owe this film. First, we have Cary Grant and his usage of the term gay. Yeah. Which was understood by the director as to mean like frivolous or something in that context and of course this is when he's wearing the pink frilly negligee talking right. to miss random and he just suddenly decided to become gay he says sarcastically yeah it's hard to it's hard to sort of read that and not see it as 
this sort of modern understanding. Well, here's the thing is that it is understood as the modern understanding. One of the very first ever shown in American film. Yeah. Because this slang term for gay evidently wasn't used popularly until, yeah. until the 1960s, but it was still used during this time, and Cary Grant was secretly gay. Well, allegedly secretly gay. I would say it's it's more confirmed than unconfirmed at this part. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was gay. But I was just reading that he spent like he had like twelve years with his secret lover, and they had their own house and uh, hung out and did all sorts of lover stuff together. So I don't know. I don't want to give anyone the impression that this is like one hundred percent confirmed, but I do want to lean them toward the idea that this is actually a thing as opposed to conjecture. Right. And there is precedent for that. I mean, again, Rock Hudson. You think about mm-hmm. Rock Hudson as it was the same sort of thing. He played the same kinds of roles as Cary Grant uh, and died of, of AIDS. Mm-hmm. All right. And the second thing I wanted to bring up about what we owe this film is that you remember when Catherine Hepburn's character's dress, the back of her dress comes off? Yes. And you actually, well, you see your undergarments effectively, and a lot of leg, a lot of skin. And evidently, that was far more racy than had been acceptable at the time. Really? And, it's, and it actually made its way past the codes. It was one of the few things accepted into it. Wow. Yeah, I did think that that was a little uh, surprising for 1938. So it definitely we... pushed the boundaries a little bit with things like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe we do owe a lot to it because I think it made some things acceptable in that sense. Yeah. Um, we can talk about the usage of the word gay and how that has become normalized in a good way obviously today but it was it was definitely taboo at the time certainly Hepburn's characters behind would have been too racy for a film at the time but maybe that because the codes ended what a couple years after that is that right mm, I don't know my film history that well off the top of my head so I think that might have been who knows might have been a brick in it but in any case these are sort of singular or landmark things in film for those reasons that american conservatism has always been a thing mm-hmm. and so maybe that's what we owe to this film yeah why don't we wrap up with does it hold up absolutely that this one is the clearest answer i think yes i laughed at this movie throughout i mean and i mean laughed like actual laughs not just like ha ha ha, ha but like actual laughs i mean i thought it was a funny movie it may just be the time of day I woke up early to watch the film. I don't remember laughing at all in the film, but oh. I did find it sort of humorous. There are a couple things, though, that I want to challenge you with with Does This Hold Up? Uh, and they have to do with special effects, because obviously. Mm, yeah. So did you notice the reflection of the glass when Cary Grant first enters the sea, baby? Yeah. So that's pretty obvious. The most obvious thing, which... I understand technological limitations of the time, and I'm not going to be a stickler on these things, but they are worth mentioning. When Catherine Hepburn is dragging not baby, the leopard that the actual, Mm -hmm. I guess, man-killing leopard from the circus in the police station, she's dragging it on a rope. When she's entering the front of the jail, you can tell there's part of her rope she's dragging, and then there's nothing, and then there's the rope that holds the leopard. And then when she's inside, and Cary Grant is trying to tell her, hey, that's not baby, that's the wrong leopard. She is holding a rope that goes to the leopard. There's a rope on the leopard's neck that goes off in a different direction. There are yeah. very clearly two ropes, one of which is a ghost rope. So yeah. something like that, it's like, okay, you would have noticed that there are two very 
different ropes here. Like where it kind of disappears, I'm fine with. But the fact that you've got two ropes coming off this leopard's neck and one just disappears into space is a little crazy. Although I would argue that that's not necessarily outside the insanity of this world that's presented. I guess. I think that might be stretched a little too far. Yeah, maybe it is a little far. Also, we should return really quickly. There are There is the uh, the issue of the terrible Irish stereotype of the of the drunk gardener. Yeah, of the hard-drinking Mr. Go- was it Gogarty? Yeah. And how he's always muttering to himself in his very stereotypical Irish accent. Right. Not just that he has an Irish accent, but that it's like the high-pitched sort of wheedling. Yeah, like, hoity-toity-toity-toity. Hoity-toity-toity. Oh, they, they won't let me drink, will they? Well, they don't know what's best for me. A man exactly. has his rights. Yeah, so it's very... <laughs> very stereotypical and like i said he's always sip he's always nipping from his, his whiskey i imagine and so i mean if we can overlook the special effects and the terrible irish stereotype and perhaps the problematic usage of the term gay even though it is the first time they on film that it's used right or at least american film i'm not sure about yeah all film. american film in that context i mean they, they used the word gay before then, well, right but. yeah if we look at it as sort of a purely in terms of plot or I guess in terms of execution, it is pretty funny. I laughed. I would watch it again. One other thing I wanted to mention in, while we're throwing out Dirty Laundry of this film, very beginning of the film when he's talking about Mr. Peabody and he thinks David's character, David anyway, Cary Grant's character, thinks that Mr. Peabody himself is donating the money. He says, well, that's really white of Mr. Peabody. Oh. Something I didn't catch until I had the subtitles. I didn't and then either. went off to IMDb and found that, in fact. Yeah, it's, that's what he meant. Oh, wow. Wow. But I can credit this film in figuring out what squat tag was because they're out in the bushes and he says, Susan, there's no time to play squat tag. And I was like, what is squat tag? And I had to, I looked it up and Webster says it's basically like you can, it's tag, but if you squat down, you cannot be tagged. Oh. I thought it was a poop joke. Well, Urban Dictionary certainly has that and some more <laughs> racy descriptions of what that might mean. But Merriam-Webster maintains that it's just a certain type of game of tag. And then they asked you, well, where did you hear this? And I scrolled down to the comments and someone had posted bringing up baby. Carrie uh. Grant, Catherine Hepburn are in the woods. So I was like, oh, okay. Other people notice it too. Yeah. Well, Ethan, what do you say we draw this thing to a close i have a leopard at my door it's much smaller and it's actually just a cat but in any <laughs> case she's a knocking and i think we should look forward to our next film number 87 on afi top 100 list 12 angry men 12 angry men so have you seen this film oh my god a long time ago okay i obviously haven't as <laughs> as per my usual however I sort of have been cued in to think that this is a very special movie. Oh. And not last week, I heard reference on a podcast, different podcast, H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. They were talking about 12 Angry Men. So it just kind of all lined up that way to hear about it. I've always heard a lot about it. I'm eagerly anticipating it. It's another sort of older film. And it's fairly famous. I mean, yeah. So we'll return in two weeks with that film. Until then, I guess we should alert our audience, sort of have their ear to the pavement. We might be coming up with something, maybe have an announcement to make pretty soon here. Ooh, we might. And we just might. In fact, it might, after dealing with this cat at my door, might, in fact, um, go work on that right now. Ooh. 
So mystery continues and will continue until next time. But until next time, I'm Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers, Catherine Hepburn. There Will Be Spoilers was hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. We were produced by Matt Bazell. Our music is by the enigmatic Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find his music all over the internet. Google him. Our artwork was by Becca Knight. You can follow her on Twitter at Becca the Knight with a K. Or you can find her website at nightdraws.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can follow us on Facebook at There Will Be Spoilers. And you can shoot us an email if you want at spoilerscast at gmail.com. We plan on answering emails on our off-week podcast, so be sure to send in your questions or comments. And finally, please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and or SoundCloud and review us, please. Thanks for listening. I just, I can't see two slaps in the face provoking him into committing murder. It may have been two too many. Everyone has a breaking point. Guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. Guilty. Boy, how do you like that? Oh, another chap flips his wings. All right. Who was it? Looks like we'll be here for dinner, huh? Okay, now let's let's get down to business. Now, who wants to start it off? I would. Okay, go. You down there. The old man who lived downstairs says he heard the kid yell out, I'm going to kill you. Second later, he heard the body hit the floor. Now, he ran to the door, and he saw the kid running down the stairs and out of the house. What does that mean to you? Well, I was wondering how clearly the old man could have heard the boy's voice through the ceiling. Didn't hear it through the ceiling. The window was open. So was the one upstairs. It was a hot night, remember? It was another apartment. It's not that easy to identify a voice, particularly a he shouting identified voice. identified it in court. That's right. And don't forget the lady across the street. She looked right in the open window and saw the boy stab his father. Now, I mean, isn't that enough for you? No, it isn't. Boy, how do you like this guy, huh? It's like talking to a dead phone. She said she saw the killing through the windows of a moving elevator train. Six cars on the train. She saw the killing through the last two cars. She remembered the most insignificant details. I don't see how you can argue with that. Has anybody here any idea how long it would take an L? This isn't a game.